0: Hello and welcome to the last episode of the IT News Podcast for 2022. Thank you listeners for supporting this season. We know there have been quite a few weeks this year with Season 1 flashback episodes. Yes, including this one. That's why in 2023, we'll be changing our release schedule. We'll be starting later, in April, and we'll have 12 weeks of new episodes. Then, we'll take two months off, and we'll be back again in August with another 12 episodes, to see us through to the end of November. When we'll wrap up the year. Thank you to all the people who took part in the podcast this year. If you have an IT story to tell, reach out to us. We'd love to hear it. If you'd like to leave us feedback on the podcast or anything IT news related, we're currently running the readership survey and we'd love to hear from you, our audience. Thank you again and we'll be back in your feeds in 2023. Hello and welcome to the brand new second season of the IT News Podcast. We had a stellar first year with the podcast, supported by a lot of incredible guests and companies, and this year is no exception. We're kicking it up several notches. This is the place to be where you'll hear real details of Australian IT strategy first. This week, we're privileged to welcome NAB's Chief Technology Officer, Steve Day, to the podcast. Steve will be well known to a lot of you. He's been heavily involved in the bank's migration to cloud and we get a proper update here on the bank's progress on a range of fronts, from workload migration to cost management. We also talk about how NAB is reshaping the pillars of its IT strategy. We hope you enjoy the conversation. You're back with NAB as the Chief Technology Officer. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're up to at NAB these days and what drew you back into the company?
1: I think both of those questions really have the same answer. I came back because of the opportunity. I spoke to the senior leadership here after spending a bit of time out in a startup, which by the way is always a good thing for a banking executive, but there was just so much opportunity to come back and to build on that cloud foundation that we built and create a whole series of new development capabilities, of projects that rolled out Simplicity, which has been a traditional problem for all financial services companies. And the opportunity that I had to come back and do that rollout, particularly around simplified platforms, simplified processes for our colleagues and better experiences for our customers, was just too good to say no to.
0: Sounds good. So I'm hoping to dig a lot into the cloud journey at NAB. And I guess just to start with, it might be useful if you can just set the scene a bit for where NAB is at on its cloud journey now. I think at the last update, I think you were at around 54% of apps migrated. Is the goal still to go eventually to 100% of apps migrated?
1: No, the goal is not to get to 100% because there are some apps that just make no sense to put into cloud. For instance, many of our mainframe applications, we don't believe that there is a cloud-based platform that is ready yet for running mainframe ledger-based applications. So for those apps, we do not plan to move into the cloud, but that's only a small percentage. It's a 10 to 20% range. Where we are now, we've actually just crossed over 60%, so that's quite exciting for us, and we're still on track to get to 80% in FY23. We're currently migrating at about three apps a week. But the whole thing about the percentages and all of that is becoming a little bit obscure just through new architectures. As we move to microservice-based architectures and our applications are not constrained in the way they used to be, they tend to be services that run across reusable microservices. Getting that exact percentage of applications is probably not the right metric into the future. So we're rethinking that at the moment. Okay. So where might you land in terms of metrics?
0: Are you going to look more at reuse, for example, and percentage of reuse across the code base or percentage of sharing across the code base?
1: That's certainly part of where our strategy goes in terms of providing platforms, which I'll get into a bit later. But in terms of just tracking our cloud usage, I think we're really focused on just getting all of our legacy applications out of that legacy environment and into the cloud. And we're just gonna work on a metric that gives us that measure as opposed to the percentage of apps.
0: Now, a lot of work in the past years has gone into what NAB called migration factories. And these were essentially just repeatable processes to bring some of these legacy applications across into cloud hosting environments. You've kind of touched on it with the mainframe side of things and potentially applications that just make no sense to migrate at all to cloud. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about the application migration factories these days and sort of as you go deeper and deeper into the app stack and you have perhaps the more difficult ones left to do, do these factories still work as intended Are there apps that are just proportionally more difficult to move and may not necessarily be conducive to running through these factory-type setups?
1: Yeah, of course. We categorize all our apps as we move them, and some are relatively standardized and can be put through a standard process, and some are insanely complex. And we treat each one as appropriate. We wouldn't run internet banking or something like that through a migration factory, for instance, because it's just too large, too complex and too specialist. We look at every app as we have it in our planning and we decide a series of treatments, actually. We look at the multi-cloud treatments. We look at the migration treatments. We look at a whole range of factors about how we're going to move that application into cloud. And has that changed at all over the course of the cloud
0: migration journey, or has that always been an option that you could do this outside of the factories? Presumably, though, you wanted most of the work to go through the factories because that would be the most efficient way to handle such a large scale project.
1: Of course, we like to standardize as much as possible. But if you force standardization on things that don't fit into the mold, you actually create problems. So yes, we try and push as much through our particular migration programs as we can. But there are some, particularly the big, complex, gnarly ones or the ones with massive upgrades to do to move them into cloud. They need to be treated separately. And we have multiple teams that are doing migrations at the moment, and we have multiple treatments. In fact, some of those treatments are not even to try and migrate there decommission the application and build a new cloud-native application on the cloud.
0: Uh-huh. And this is what you're suggesting, some of the reuse and microservices-based stuff might come into play, I guess.
1: Yes, of course. When you're doing that, of course, you would go to the latest architectures and technologies in order to make the best use of your application. And when we develop anything on cloud now, we're not developing in those old three-tier architectures. It's very much microservices based. It's very much containerized and serverless. It's a completely different approach now to what it was back in the 1990s. You touched very
0: briefly there on multi-cloud. I wondered if you could just talk a little bit more about what the current multi-cloud mix looks like and perhaps what governs some of your choices within that. Obviously, it's been a lot about NAB being very open about its cloud journey and being very open about the multi-cloud setup
1: Mm, Yeah, and we put a lot into that. In fact, we put a lot into the entire governance structure of our move to cloud. So very early in the piece, we developed a framework we call CAST, Cloud Adoption Standards and Techniques. And what that does is it governs the 93 controls that we have in place to move applications into cloud and then puts a whole series of standards and techniques in how to meet those controls for any particular application. I mentioned many are different, so we have different standards and techniques depending on the type of application. And within CAST, we specify that we have to look at each application as it comes through, and we have to classify it in terms of multi-cloud. And where that comes from, there's been a lot of misunderstanding about that. People think we're using multi-cloud for disaster recovery. We're not. We use multi-cloud for commercial impairment. And what that actually means is we're not prepared to bet the bank on the continued successful operation of any one cloud provider. And when you're putting almost all of your applications on one cloud provider, if that cloud provider becomes the next Enron, well, guess what, you're out of business. And we just weren't prepared to do that. So we categorize every app as it comes through. We give it one of six multi-cloud treatments. And that is based on a multidimensional analysis that covers everything from its materiality to its criticality to its inertia how hard it would be to move in a crisis, the sensitivity of the data, all of those things come into play. And then we give it one of six multi-cloud treatments. And MCT1, which is our lowest treatment, basically means it's an app for convenience. And if it wasn't here, it would be slightly annoying, but would not interrupt the business. An example of that would be the room booking app that you can book a meeting room in the office. And MCT1 basically means you don't need to do multi-cloud. All the way up to MCT6, which is a critical app. We couldn't live for very long if a cloud provider became commercially impaired. And for that particular one, we insist on active-active across two clouds that we can basically move instantly. And then all the way through in between, we have MCT3, which is be able to move within a month. MCT4, be able to move within a week all these sorts of classifications, and all of these categorizations are done at scale. It's actually not too hard to move one app in a week. It's very hard to move 2,000 apps in a week. So the way we build multi-cloud treatments and the architectures that underpin those is so that we could migrate at scale for each of the criticalities for each of the applications that we're assessing. By far the proportion are in that MCT3, MCT4 categorization, move in a week, move in a month, far less than 1% are at the MCT6. There's very few that if our primary supplier went under, we couldn't live without for a few hours. But there are a couple ledger-based applications, et cetera. And then there's quite a few that also are not requiring multi-cloud because they're apps for convenience. And
0: are the apps still primarily in AWS and Azure? Are there other clouds that are particularly
1: used? We've standardized on AWS and Azure for now. We want to use Google and we plan to use Google. It's just the priorities at the moment. When Azure came into the
0: multi-cloud mix in mid 2020, at scale, I guess, NAB signed on, I think, for a 1000 apps in 1000 days migration, which is a bit like the same programs you see with AWS, the 30 apps in 30 days kind of initiatives. That 1000 apps in 1000 days had you going through, I think, until about mid 2023 I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you're tracking within that program or whether you've kind of departed away from that now that you've hit some sort of scale in that Azure ecosystem.
1: Yeah, no, we're not actually hitting the five apps a week that we initially scheduled. We're hitting about three. But then when you combine that with the other section I said about the decommissioning and rebuild of a certain number of apps, we're still roughly on track and we're still planning to hit our initial target of 80% in calendar year 23 So I think we're not quite at the pace that we said that we'd like to be at, but we're very close.
0: And I feel like maybe, as you say earlier in the conversation, the numbers and the percentages kind of mean less because the strategy has kind of changed and evolved as the program has moved through its phases, I guess.
1: Yeah, it would. If I was to count every microservice as an app, we'd be at 95% now, I think, just because the sheer number of microservices. But we haven't done that, and we continue to look at how we would just be able to represent our actual goal of everything we want in the cloud being in the cloud. One thing I wanted to
0: talk about and ask you about was you've been involved in the cloud journey from the outset, and you've seen it evolve over a number of years. I can remember back in the early days, there was a huge buzz and excitement about it and a lot of public presentations, a lot of overseas vendor presentations, huge amount of information out in the public domain. You kind of see less and less of it, but I just wonder whether this is cloud becoming part of NAB's business as usual, part of the machinery And maybe there just isn't that much now to potentially talk about compared to the sort of opening. I'd be interested in your thoughts about how cloud and the cloud culture has evolved within NAB to where it is
1: today. I think you're right. You're absolutely right. It's become part of the furniture. It's just what we do now. I guess when banks built their first mainframes and data centers, there was just as much hoo-ha, but we just don't talk about that anymore. It really has become embedded I mean, I'm focused on it every day, of course, but you're right, we're not out there publicly talking about what we've been doing consistently now for five years. It would be very boring if we were, but it is a five year program. We're getting on with it and we're making great progress.
0: Would you care to throw out some suggestions about where you think the next hoo-ha might come from? Where the next thing that gets people really excited at a large scale might appear
1: from? Well, from our perspective, it's more about what we're doing with cloud and the value we can add to customers. It's things like what we are putting out there at the moment, our plans around one hour home loans, around a stateless workplace, around what we're doing with FinOps about serverless development, compliance as code, all of those sorts of aspects of what we're actually building on top of cloud. And now I think starting to replace the hype that we had around cloud itself in the early days. I'm glad you brought up FinOps.
0: It's something that we've seen some messaging emerge from NAB in the past couple of months. Now, obviously, there's a whole sector devoted to FinOps. There's a huge amount of material and documentation and a whole discipline in its own right. I'm sort of curious for your take on the whole evolution of FinOps and this topic of cloud cost controls. On one hand, it's a real source of engineering pride in terms of being able to keep a tight control on this, On the other side, when you see certain activities or when you see certain overruns, there's also often some discussion among companies as to whether cloud providers could potentially do more to help their customers and to recognize any really anomalous kind of overrun in fees and to flag it a lot earlier. Keen on your thoughts as to how you see that space evolving.
1: Yeah, no, and, and thanks for the question, because it is really important, right? And whenever you move from a fixed cost model to a variable cost model, there's always that opportunity for shock, particularly in something like cloud, where you can spin up very large costs very quickly. Interestingly, and very coincidentally, my last meeting before coming on here was to kick off a Hacker event that we have running across all of our teams on new ideas, on things we can do around financial operations and extra things we can make. And that's part of embedding that culture, which you absolutely have to do. And you have to put lots of controls in place as well to your point you can spend a lot of money very quickly one of the controls we have around that is monitoring on the six-hour billing feeds that we get from our cloud providers they provide almost real-time billing and so if something does get spun up very quickly that is spending outside of the process we actually use a little bit of machine learning to identify that and to raise flags when it occurs we're also doing all of the basics that any cloud user should be doing Things like over Christmas, we were very diligent in making sure that every development team turned off their development environments over the Christmas break, and that saved close to a million dollars. So there are things like that. There are making sure that we're using Spot where we can on serverless-type architectures. We right-size all the time. We're making the most of the elasticity where we can, and really just diligently looking at everything. You know, one thing that came up last week, which I really loved, was we swapped a whole lot of applications to ARM. processors. And we're able to do that in days when we realized that ARM processors were now available, reliable, and a fraction of the cost of traditional x86 architectures. So things like that, you just could never do that in a data center. But with cloud, if you're focused and if you're diligent and you really pay attention to FinOps, you can take advantage of those sorts of things and end up saving a huge amount of money compared to the old way of doing things.
0: Just to expand on that, how do you see the discipline of FinOps developing internally at NAB? You see a lot of different approaches around the integration of finance and technology these days. You see like CFOs sitting inside of the technology organization. You see businesses going down the TBM route in terms of trying to get a better understanding of their costs, for example. This kind of plays a little bit outside of cloud as well, which I was hoping to have a couple of questions on, but I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you see finance and cost evolving as a discussion and as a discipline inside of NAV.
1: Sure, it has to be a drumbeat. It has to have that, I keep saying discipline, but it is discipline behind it, a cadence behind it. It needs to be built into the culture. We have a FinOps team. We've actually created their day job as running FinOps. In terms of our finance teams, we created a whole series of training. And as I'm sure you've know, we run the Cloud Guild, which has trained 7,000 of our colleagues throughout the years. We've taken a elective of that that we call as part of the Executive Guild, and the Executive Guild is putting our technology-focused subjects in front of our executives so that things like financial ops can be embedded. And we really spent a lot of time with the CFO team and did a whole training course on FinOps and how cloud works and everything from how the exchange rate works on cloud billing to how the discount structures work to how elasticity works to the ability to chop and change and to use things like spot which are incredibly innovative from a finance perspective i do believe that we're well on the way to having that thought process well and truly embedded right across not just the tech teams but also the finance teams
0: i'd like to talk a little bit more broadly than just cloud i know we've talked a lot about cloud in this conversation but i wondered if you could just talk a little bit to nab's broader technology strategy and some of the key pillars and areas of focus both this year and beyond And I guess from that, it'd be particularly interesting to know the areas of focus that you're really driving internally as the Chief Technology Officer.
1: We are actually reviewing that at the moment. We set our current tech strategy in 2018 with cloud as a pillar. It was really focused on agility, simplicity, cost management, et cetera. And now we're looking at that thinking it's certainly not time to throw it out because it's been a very effective strategy. But it is probably time to look at the next revision of that strategy. And particularly along the lines of moving cloud from a pillar to an underlying capability, to a, I'd say, a foundation of the pivoted strategy, and very much focused on coming up the stack now, very much focused on getting better tech talent strategies in place. Moving to more of a platform-based architecture where, you know, I mentioned the whole microservice concept and everything before, but really embedding that in our strategy that reuse becomes critically important and the whole concept of one way, same way the technology areas in financial services company have become increasingly complex over the years to the point where they're extremely complex today and we need to simplify that and one way we plan to do that is to use the basis of cloud to use the fact that we now have infrastructure as code and that that generates so many opportunities now to create platforms to cut and paste capabilities from one business in the overall group to another to reuse the functionality that we build in terms of microservices across a much wider area than we've traditionally done, and to really just create a ecosystem of platforms rather than thousands and thousands of applications.
0: Just one thing you touched on there was recruitment, and obviously it's a hot topic for all organizations that are looking for tech talent. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit more about the strategy. Maybe you haven't really necessarily said it yet, if it's still under development, but If you could just talk a little bit about how NAB is approaching the recruitment of technology skills at the moment and how it fits with your broader training and education ethos.
1: It's a big problem for, I think, the economy at the moment. I wouldn't even say tech companies. There is an incredible shortage of great tech talent out there and the market, as a consequence, is extremely hot. And we can see, looking at the wider numbers, that Australia actually needs a million people in tech by 2025. NAB needs to add 1500 this year, we're putting in place lots of programs, you know we've got a large intern program which will introduce 500 new interns this year, we've got our graduate programs, we've got a variety of different sourcing programs to get that tech talent in That's, I would say, right up at the top of our list now, because we realise that with what we've built and what we continue to work on, we need the very best in Australia and we need to create an environment where the best are attracted to. And we did that with cloud, but we need to take that to another level now. It's been quite a ride for the last five years, but as we look into it and what we've achieved, the last thing we want to do is rest on our laurels. We certainly need to take what we've done, use that as a foundation to build that next level of simplicity and capability to the business.